Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everybody. It's John Morrison. I'm CEO of the Institute for Human Rights and Business, and thank you for joining us for this broadcast. A very important subject today, um, the interface between climate change and human rights. I think everybody understands more than we've ever done in our lives, I think, how important it is that the world makes the necessary changes and transitions away from how we're currently behaving in order to meet our net zero target by, by 2050. And this will obviously involve huge environmental changes, changes in, in energy use, changes in, in business, but there's also a social dimension, and it's that social dimension to the transitions ahead that we really want to explore today. And, and I'm in conversation with Helena Ward, who is perhaps one of the best people, I think, uh, to, to, to start this conversation with us. She, she started as an environmental lawyer. Um, she's worked at the interface between business and sustainable development, uh, some of the thinking around democracy and climate change, and has worked for Chatham House, uh, the International Institute for Environment and Development, and for a few years uh, ran the Foundation for Democracy and Sustainable Development. So she's very well qualified to get us thinking about this. So Helena, please join me. Hello, Helena. Can you hear me fine? Yes. Okay. Right, so I want to get us started with the big picture. Um, the world's in a mess, right? Uh, we need huge changes in terms of how we behave, in terms of our energy use, in terms of how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives. The environmental case is clearer, clearer, and clearer. Why are we even worried about the social side of things? Aren't we just muddying the waters um, and delaying tactic, perhaps, by trying to overcomplicate the narrative around climate change? Why, why all the social stuff? How can we not be concerned about the social side? There's so many impacts that, that, that are inherently social. People being forced to move home because where the places that they live and they work are vulnerable to the, literally to the impacts of sea level rise, for example. Whole nations potentially wiped out among the small island states. These are inherently social impacts. And it's very clear as well that the people who will suffer these impacts are predominantly more vulnerable people. Because if you have the wherewithal to adapt, to respond, to call on your friends, your families and so on, you're in a much better position to bounce back, to be resilient. Whereas if you're vulnerable, it's so much more difficult. So there's an inherent social justice angle as soon as you start looking at the impacts of climate change. It's not just about the impacts on biodiversity, uh, or, or the health of ecosystems. And the other thing is, we are part of the ecosystems. We're, we're not somehow separate from the environment. We are of the environment, and we are creating these impacts. Okay, well, I get it. I get it in terms of the outcomes. I get it in terms of the victims of climate change, people on low-lying islands, um, people whose livelihoods are being taken away from them. I get the, the poorest in the world are the most vulnerable. So I get that bit, but what about the people who have to stop their work in the oil industry tomorrow or, or stop working in mining or change their cars? Or why should we care about people in that way? Surely we're complicating things if we think about 
the changes people have to make to their livelihoods and their work to, to, to get to the change we need. Surely we should put victims first and just get on and make the changes and not worry about uh, communities and workers along the way. They just, they just have to lump it in a way, right? There's a bigger, there's a, there's a bigger goal here. Well, they've got human rights as well, of course. Um, and, and, and what you're leading us to with that question, John, of course, is exactly this, this, this idea of just transition um, that, we've, that we've both been starting to explore. And so it, it, once one recognises that climate change has impacts on people, that vulnerable people are particularly susceptible to feeling the pain of climate change, then you have to start looking at what do we do about it? And once you start looking at what do we do about it, well, of course, there are loads and loads of different ways to do things about it. And, and let's start with the fossil fuel industries. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 45% from their 2010 levels by 2030. If we're to stand a chance of meeting the one and a half degree centigrade global average global warming target that's been agreed. So that's going to have a massive impact and it's going to have an impact on workers and on communities. Now the reason we have to do that is because of the environment and because of the rights of the people who are impacted if we don't do that. But then there are other people who are brought in as soon as we start to take action on climate change. And the, in a sense the thing about the business and human rights agenda is that it provides to, to some extent, it provides a, an undeveloped set of tools, but it provides a set of tools that allow you to address both sets of human rights impacts simultaneously. So just transition, the idea of just transition is about looking at, well, partly about looking at human rights in the context of responses to climate change and the business and human rights agenda then brings this, this, this rather well-developed set of insights into how to do that in such a way that you're not just looking at say workers in coal mines for example but you're also looking about the rights of people in surrounding communities and linking their rights to the other impacts in human rights terms of climate change as well so you can shut down a coal mine but simultaneously reopen a coal mine somewhere far away so the business and human rights agenda lends itself to taking a more integrated approach. So the question, Helena, is I'm a, I'm a coal miner in Poland, right? Or in the Midwest of the US. And um, I've got human rights too, right? And I, I, you know, I can, whilst I'm able to protect my job and, and feed my family and get health care and stuff, how, how do you put my human rights on, on a scale balanced against people living on a low-lying island, low, low island in the, in the Pacific, how on earth do you make kind of judgments as to whose human rights should come first? Well, I mean, of course, the universality of human rights means that you shouldn't have to trade off one against another. Rights, human rights should be enjoyed around the world equally by all people. But to answer the question more directly, of course, the rights of the, of the worker in the coal mine in you know, wherever it might be count as well. And in a sense, the, the just transition idea was initially spearheaded from the trade union movement out of the recognition that environment policies can have adverse impacts unless they're consciously and properly addressed for the rights of workers. 
including rights to work, including also the key procedural fundamental labour rights around freedom of association and the, and the right to participate in decisions that affect the future of workers. So this just transition concept, you, you can hear it in the idea itself, just transition, transitioning from one thing to another, is a framework that, that provides for addressing the rights of those who are impacted by responses to climate change. So we've already talked about how climate change has human rights impacts that need to be addressed. There's an imperative to address those human rights impacts or a justification in the world of human rights. But responses to climate change can also have adverse human rights impacts. And just transition is a framework that allows one to focus down on those. I mean, I would add to that that the human rights of those affected by responses to climate change are not only the rights of workers in fossil fuel industries, of course. You know, if we, if we invest heavily in biofuels or we start extracting minerals in, in new places in order to fuel the demand for batteries, um, then those new processes pr of production are also going to have human rights impacts. And okay, but I don't want to transition, right? I love my job. I like where I live. I, don't, I want the right not to transition. Is, is that okay? Well, you should be able to express your views about transition in a process that is inclusive and participatory. And I think it's a incumbent upon... Um, it's incumbent upon businesses and governments and communities, I think, to develop ideas around what could the alternatives be. Now, thankfully, there is a strong business case in many of the economic sectors out of which greenhouse gas emissions intensive production will be coming and going into. Sorry, so there's a, there's a, there's a transition out of greenhouse gas emissions intensive production and the question then is what replaces it and and can what replaces it be adequate to provide something attractive to those who are adversely impacted by the transition out so that's the challenge and doing it in a way that is fair and inclusive and participatory is the huge challenge and if we fail to do it in a way that is inclusive and fair and participatory, then we're not really living up to the promise of, of, of respect for human rights. So that's the challenge. And, and then the just transition space is a space into which experiments and ideas and evidence around that process of change uh, can fit. So I think what you're saying, but beneath all of this nicety, is that actually there are hard choices, right? That there is a net zero target we have to reach as a planet by 2050. And people are gonna be affected by that, right? If, if, yeah. if nobody is affected, we don't meet our carbon neutral target by 2050. Um, so uh, there are gonna be climate, there are gonna be victims in the sense of, of, of the need to train, change livelihoods, change the way people live. That's inevitable, right? You haven't said that because it's the premise that there is going to be disruption and transformation. Yeah. Otherwise, the world is finished and life forms are finished. Well, no, that, that's, that's not, the is world it? isn't finished and life forms aren't finished. There'll be different life forms, and you know. But we're finished. <laughs> you and I will be. Yeah. <laughs> At least the way we do. All right. So, why? What brings you to this discussion? I'm really intrigued. You know, you said a bit about your background at the beginning. Um, why do you find yourself sitting at this uh, very uh, 
very, very interesting place between social aspects and climate aspects. Why do you think you're sitting on this uh, edifice? Of my, my sort of my professional journey started out um, in environment law, and I was incredibly lucky that I was able to go to the Rio Earth Summit back in 1992, where the idea of sustainable development really crystallised as, as an intergovernmentally recognised call to action. And, and the, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was, was, um, was concluded. And, and so my, I suppose my personal journey, having started with environment law, is one in which I've increasingly recognised the significance of the social dimension of sustainable development and, and grown with it. And spent four years a little while ago looking after a little, a little NGO with colleagues looking at links between democracy and sustainable development and seeking to answer the question, what impact will climate change have on democracy as a political system? And my goodness, that raises all sorts of issues. Yeah, give me the quick answers of that. What will, how, how it will affect democracy? Well, the deeper we get in crisis, the easier it seems to become to get away with highly authoritarian responses. But of course, our authoritarian responses that are not built on full respect for civil and political rights ultimately can turn out to be unstable. And they may well not be very good either at solving highly complex problems where you need to call on the resources and the potential of everybody in society to come up with the solution. So, you know, I, I, I believe very strongly in, in democracy as, as the, the as the best political system that we've come up with yet when it comes to achieving sustainable development. And I can see that the, the, the climate crisis potentially presents threats to democracy. And of course, independently from that, there are all sorts of other driving forces around, swirling around, um, which mean that democracy can't be taken for granted, absolutely can't be taken for granted and even that the promise of democracy to deliver a better future for the next generation can't be taken for granted, even in those countries that profess to be democracies. So uh, it's, uh, I'm being rather long-winded here, but so I, I, I worked for some time on sustainable development out, coming out of this background in environment law, I spent a long time working on links between business and sustainable development, and then spent four years exploring these links between sustainable development and democracy as a political system. And of course, one of the huge problems is that we need to have periodic elections for the accountability and the legitimation of democracy. But when you have elections every four or five years, it can be really difficult to maintain a long-term perspective. And so that really came out to me as well, this, this huge political challenge of, how to keep an eye on the long term. And climate change absolutely brings that to the fore because you're talk, potentially talking about impacts that could unfold over 100,000 years, as well as 5, 10, 20, 50 years. So I, right, I get all that, and I, I, I get democracy. Um, but why human rights? I mean, human rights, you know, in the UK, we say human rights is you know, it's a real marmite subject. People you know, love it or hate it. There's a heck of a lot of people out there that really hate the concept of human rights. Why can't we talk about this as a development issue, a humanitarian issue? Why, 
Why do you use the human rights words in relation to so, change? So, so right, democracy is, so, is very closely linked to civil and political rights, isn't it? And, and the kind of the, the procedural rights of access to information and public participation and, and remedy and so on. Okay, then we've got the all the other human rights as well, the right to health, the right to life, the right to adequate shelter and so on. And, and, and there I'm more of a beginner, frankly, when it comes to, to understanding the relationship between business and climate change and human rights. But it seems to me that there are a few things that, that make that avenue fruitful in terms of delivering fast and fair action on climate change. And one is this idea, which you've already invited exploration of in this conversation, which is that you can't trade off the rights of the workers employed by coal mines against the rights of farmers, maybe 50 years from now, in some very distant part of the world. The human rights framework doesn't lend itself to making those trade-offs. And that's a huge challenge if you come from a sustainable development background, because there are forms of sustainable development that emphasize the idea of integration and hard choices and trade-offs. And so there's something about the idea of human rights that presents a harder challenge because you can't do those trade-offs in that way. I mean, you have to still have to talk about boundaries, don't you, between you know, where does your responsibility end and somebody else's responsibility begin? But you can't, you can't really talk about trade-offs in the same way. So why don't we just talk about climate and the sustainable development goals? I mean, it just, it just doesn't loading all this with the human rights concept just, just, just weigh us down and, and create... Well, yeah, so, yeah, so then we need to think about... I mean, you know, my background, my background is sustainable development, yeah. so I'm kind of really, also really interested in your answer on that, John. Um, but it seems to me there is, there is a, from the business perspective as well, we have these UN guiding principles on business and human rights. They're really quite well developed um, in, as a call to action, as well as a set of norms to guide business practice. Um, the sustainable development goals also speak to business. Um, but they don't set out a blueprint for business action. So for me, part of the interesting question is how do you use the UN guiding principles on business and human rights to help you to deliver the sustainable development goals? And of course, the sustainable development goals themselves build in respect for human rights as well. But what, but what about you, John? How do you, I mean, how do you see that? Where, where do you see the, the added value of, a, of the human rights entry point as compared to sustainable development? Listen, you know, if, if, if we were still in the Garden of Eden, if it was, you know, if, if we hadn't touched the forbidden fruit, um, I, I don't think we probably need human rights, right? I mean, I think for me, human rights speaks to the human condition and the fact that we are flawed as, as, as people. We're flawed because of our egos, because we can be selfish, because we can be greedy and, and everything else, right? So if you think about action in terms of climate change, in an ideal world, you know, in a, in a paradise, people would take the action needed for some utilitarian sort of end goal to save the species and to create a more just society. It's just, I think, the, the experience of, of, of the recent hundreds of, years, hundreds of years is that people don't act in the right way or act at all unless they're accountable for their actions. And it's this accountability question that for human rights, one of the things human rights brings in 
is holding governments accountable for their action or their lack of action in relation to climate change. The same for business. And I'd argue also the same for communities um, to some extent as well and workers, that we are all accountable for what we do and don't do in relation to climate and the changes that are needed. Um, so for me, I can't think of justice. I can't think of a just transition. Justice without accountability doesn't make sense for me. Justice doesn't happen without accountability. And, and so for me, human rights is inevitably part of this discussion. Otherwise, I just don't believe we will achieve the sustainable change that, uh, the, the, that we're talking about because there are too many perverse co um, incentives for populist leaders, for short-term companies, for lazy people <laughs> for, uh, to, to not do anything or pretend they're doing something and not doing what they need to do. So um, let's not forget that also that on the sustainable development side, there is also strong recognition, I think, for accountability and principles around rights of access to environmental information and rights of public participation and access to environmental justice are really strongly embedded in the sustainable development framing, if you like. And then human rights and, and, and those principles that come together as well under the sustainable development goals. But, and that's positive, right? Because it, yep. because it provides really fruitful ground for the, the, the two frameworks and the two sets of actors to come together as well. And then, you know, if I kind of stick with my sustainable development um, background and for the, for the time being, I'd also say that sustainable development as a framework throws out a number of challenges to the business and human rights community or the human rights community and principle among those is this huge conundrum of conundrum of climate action which is around the needs of future generations the human rights frameworks so from what i can tell despite having kind of come up with declarations and agreements that have about i don't know about 40 references to human rights including the universal declaration itself hasn't yet evolved to deliver human rights for future generations. This is really one of the interesting uh, uh, intergenerational justice. I know it's a, it's a, it's a subject that we, we share an interest in. And yeah. I remember when Mary Robinson and others were in Iceland last year, um, laying the plaque to the first glacier that's now disappeared, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a plaque for 200 years time. Yeah. And it particularly in Icelandic says, you know, we, we know, we, we, you know, we know that we have to do something so that we don't fail you in 200 years time. So there are still some glaciers somewhere in 200 years time. So the bearing witness to the fact that there is a self-awareness now. But you're right. I don't think human rights on its own uh, is, is enough to, to think yeah. about intergenerational justice. What are, how we should act now for the benefit of, uh, not just our grandchildren, but our great, 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 great you know, generations to come. Um, because human rights is cradle to grave, right? I mean, there's a lot of contention as to <laughs> the sort of, you know, should it be from conception to cradle? And, you know, lots of people get very hot about that. But there's less discussion about the sort of the dead bit, right? Once we're dead, we're dead. And, we, and, and therefore our human rights end. Uh, and, and this idea that we should be acting now for the human rights of people yet to be born um, is a very interesting one. It's a very new one, and I haven't really met many people in the human rights community that have thought that through, and there isn't really a framework. What is it then that the human rights movement can learn from, from you guys, then, from the development community, yeah. and from yeah. your own thinking on intergenerational justice, which is absolutely crucial for these climate decisions, right? 
Um, yeah, where do we, where do we, how do we learn together? I guess is my question. I mean, that 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 clearly is one of the areas. I think so. So, so the challenge from sustainable development to the human rights community is get your act together. <laughs> you know, we've developed this framework, and it's about meeting the needs of future generations, not not just tackling inequality in the present. Um, so that's one of the areas where then where there, there's really fruitful prospects for, for, to, for to work in common cause, I suppose. Um, the other is that the, the sustainable development field, of course, has developed lots and lots of business facing management tools, guidelines, principles, standards, which are, are very directly relevant to transitioning out of greenhouse gas emissions intensive production i mean i know you're very interested in the idea of the of the um circular economy concept for example but it you know it doesn't stop there there's environmental management systems climate risk assessment as well as a rapidly evolving field so there are lots and lots of tools that are business facing that the business and human rights community can usefully draw on as it evolves its approach on climate change and then one of the quite exciting challenges i think is to find ways to integrate human rights due diligence not just at the operational level but beyond with climate risk assessment and climate risk assessment my understanding is tends to be highly aggregated as an approach and human rights due diligence tends to be tends to kind of at least stop at the at the border of the of the business's direct linkages uh, and not really go far enough to look at say human rights impacts that are distant in time and distant in space resulting from greenhouse gas emissions that get mixed up with lots of other greenhouse gas emissions so there's lots of lots of fruitful area for cooperation there as well i think right well so why given i think the climate and human rights nexus is quite a wide one and we've talked about intergenerational justice there's also um, climate justice. You yeah. know, a lot of people, Mary Robinson, our founding chair, has, has spent a lot of her time recently working on that issue, and, and, and Greta Thunberg and others. Why then just trans? Why is it that in the Paris Agreement, in the preamble of the Paris Agreement, we don't see climate justice, we don't see intergenerational justice, but we do see this concept of just transition? Why is that the one that sort of surfaced? Um, there, are lots, there are lots of ways of answering that question because why did that surface that? And there was a struggle there was a struggle and the struggle was led by people in the union movement um who, who gained support of other actors and just transition is is there but it's wrong to say that climate justice isn't reflected in the intergovernmental climate architecture because what's the core concern of climate justice it's around the legal and the ethical implications of vulnerability to climate change. So of course it's there. There's loads of stuff there about people who are vulnerable to climate change and the need to take account of their, of their not just their interests, their rights. There's a rec recognition of human rights as well in the preamble to the Paris Agreement. Climate justice, of course, is also about remedying the impacts of emissions and i think that i think frankly many businesses find it quite hard to engage with that openly in a multi-stakeholder way because it's 
because it's because it's challenging you know you find yourself in court the lawyers get wheeled out they defend you and and you move into a different mode of uh, of dialogue and discussion to the one that you're in when you talk about developing management systems to deliver on your climate targets but i think what's really clear to me is that that central concern of the climate justice movement with the 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 rights of people who are vulnerable is something that the business and human rights community absolutely needs to take on board as it turns its attention to climate change. Um, yeah, that, that's it really. And the, other, and the other thing is, I think that when it comes to climate justice, cli the, the climate litigation, I understand that it's uncomfortable for businesses, but it is potentially a very strong driver of change in the business community. And some of the insights that are being tested in courts around the world are ones that really bear close reflection by any business. So this central question of how do you make a link between one business's greenhouse gas emissions in one place and their impacts maybe many thousands of miles away, many, many dozens of years from now in another place? How, how, what's the, how do you attribute that? So I think the UN, UN guiding principles on business and human rights create a responsibility on the part of businesses to take action on climate change. The climate justice movement's focus on climate litigation is an invitation for them to think very seriously about how they draw boundaries around that and to find ways of linking their greenhouse gas emissions with their human rights impacts, even though they won't be able to point to them and say, those are mine. Okay, so let's come on to just transition as well let's maybe you can even give me yes no answers to this to, to <laughs> the, is the, the classic definition of just transition as it appears in the paris agreement and also some ilo declarations right so the just transition is either about transitioning out from high carbon to low carbon or or, or, or transitioning into new green technologies or, or industries of some kind is it essentially about jobs and workers? Is that what it's about? So there are, there are different fault lines, if you like, in the way in which just transition is evolving. So on the one hand, the ILO in 2015 published guidelines on just transition, and they're all about the transition into sustainable economies. And they're all about the transition into workplaces and societies that reflect sustainable development. The reference to just transition, and that's from the ILO, right, the International Labour Organization, the reference to just transition in the preamble to the Paris Agreement is very specifically climate change related. And it's centered on the workplace and on workers. And I'm, I'm painting that slightly, slightly crudely. So you've got, you've got the idea of tr just transition having resonance independently of the climate change space as, as a, a call to action on the transition towards sustainability. And then you've got a, if you like, a subset of it, which is just transition in the climate action space, which is reflected in the preamble to the Paris Agreement. And if you look at the history of the term, then undoubtedly it stems from workers 
coming together with environmental frontline environmental communities in common cause to address the impacts of environmental policies in the workplace. And it's focused on time and space. So you were earlier were talking about climate justice and the sort of aggregate impacts of the historic and the aggregate impacts of yeah. business activity on the climate. But when we talk about just transitions, it does tend to be focused on a transition, i.e. Uh, from now moving forward, uh, and, and a particular set of workers or communities around uh, a particular industry, right? I mean, it, it is located in time and space, the, tr the just transition concept. Yes, and it's and it's interesting actually, John, because one of the one of the things I've 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 learned from from having conversations with you while preparing this the paper for a IHRB um, that will soon be published is around that. Wait a minute, maybe just transition looks forward. How far does just transition look back? Mm. And and perhaps the you know the insights from and perhaps we didn't touch on that very much when we were talking about climate justice just now. Maybe 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 that's something that. To ask you, in fact, do you, do you see that? As, is that for you one of the key distinctions, in a sense, between climate justice and just transition? That just transition looks forward and climate justice often looks back? I'm still getting my head around just transitions, as you know, but it seems to be, although I think we can go beyond just talking about jobs and labour standards, although I think that's the heart of it, I think we can talk about human rights of workers and other affected groups. Yeah, and let's come back to that as well. We have to yeah. come back to that issue. Certainly the way IHRB is thinking of testing this through our own pilots and developing our ideas is, is, is that some level of geographic focus and some level of sort of forward moving time frame is important. That if you take the concept out of that, it begins to lose some of its meaning, i.e you know, there is a definable number of human beings whose rights we're, we're looking at during this transition process, i.e. it's not the whole planet or no, think... you know, nine or five billion people. It's, it's, an, it's, a def, it's workers, communities whose livelihoods depend on the change in, in industry or business or, or, or livelihoods more generally. They, they might be you know, indigenous people's um, livelihoods or, you know, they're not necessarily an industrial idea, but it is about uh, people's livelihoods, the way they work. It's not just about jobs. It can be about equity. It can be about consent, but it is about livelihoods, I think. Um, it's certainly in my head at the moment. So I, I agree to some extent, but I also think that when you start looking at the potential of the business and human rights, agenda applied to climate change you've got two routes in in a sense you've got the the human rights impact of climate change as a physical phenomenon which may be distant in time and space and therefore might look like they're not really addressed by tr just transition which is here and now and then you've got all of the human rights impacts of how you respond to climate change and just transitions origins say well look at the impacts on workers in the fossil fuel industry or, or other industries whose production processes have to change really dramatically but the challenge it seems to me is actually to link the two 
Yeah. Because if you, if, let's say, yeah, you've got a wonderful process, and, and actually sustainable development is quite good on this as well. So you've got a wonderful process of transition that in, however you define your boundaries for the transition process, it could be at a region, let's say it's not plant level, it's regional level, let's say. But if the gains, if the gap that's presented in the global economy in a sense, is met elsewhere by opening up new coal mines somewhere else, there has to be a way to bring those knock-on effects into the just transition process and dialogue. And there has to be, and it strikes me that human rights due diligence as a tool can't just stop at the boundaries of the, you know, the stakeholders in the room when the just transition negotiation happens. It has to have some means for taking into account the knock-on human rights impacts of the of what happens as a result. So you might have a great policy to shut down your coal mines in a location where the government's committed to shutting down your coal mines while simultaneously investing in opening up loads of new coal mines elsewhere, for example. So I think there is a huge challenge there. The aggregate does matter. The aggregate does matter. I don't yes. think it's possible to yeah. just to, to put really you know, a high fence around the idea of, of location-specific just transition. That's, and, that, and as soon as you look at the human rights impacts of climate change, you start to ask yourself questions about that and how far to go. Um, but you're, I mean, you're right in that just transition starts with the, the industries, the sectors, the places where change needs to happen to deliver the, the well, ultimately deliver on the, Paris Agreement, if you want to make that. Something you said earlier on, it's, I mean, it's about prevention and mitigation, but it's also about resilience and adaptation, right? Yeah. It's, it's about minimising the effects, well, trying to avoid some of the effects of, uh, so they don't happen in the first place. So, so to limit warming, but it's also how do communities cope with the inevitable consequences of the warming that is going to happen, right? Yeah, and thanks for coming back to that, because I, th I think there are, a couple of things happen to the framing of just transition i think when you when you kind of when you when you when you look at it through this business and human rights lens and you and just just transition appears in the preamble to the paris agreement and there are ilo guidelines on just transition yeah. which are largely addressing governments not exclusively but largely address governments but it, it's a term that has resonance kind of out there you know there are plenty of community groups there are plenty of businesses there are plenty of plenty of actors experimenting with just transition and using the term in different ways and so one of the sets of fault lines around the breadth of just transition concerns how far you go beyond the workplace to look at communities and of course there are very many people in the trade union movement who say yeah, absolutely you don't just look at the workplace workers come from communities don't they um, but, but that idea that just transition is a way of addressing rights in the workplace and in affected communities is gathering momentum, I think. And the other thing is that if, if part of the idea of just transition is the transition out, then that sounds like the just transition is the transition that's to do with mitigating climate change. But the business and human rights agenda and the link to climate change shows you that other responses to climate change can also have human rights impacts. Yes. Adapting to climate change by relocating whole cities, for example, has massive human rights implications. Yes. And so, that, so there's another fault line in the breadth of just transition that's around how far does it fill out from mitigation to adaptation 
and adaptation uh, can be a response to climate impacts. But of course, adaptation and climate adaptation is also part of the fabric of the sustainable economy, the green jobs, green and decent jobs and the sustainable economies of the future that we're trying to transition out into. And then the other thing about, so, th so those two th things are kind of fault lines in the breadth of just transition uh, and whether it, how far it extends to community rights and how far it attend, uh, extends beyond mitigation to adaptation. The other thing is how radical is, is just transition? And the UN Research Institute on, on Social Development, UNRIS, has done some great work and they've come up with this fantastic typology. And, and it's great work partly because they get beyond the focus on high income countries doing just transition to look at the, the distributional impacts of all sorts of policy measures in many middle and low income countries as well. And they've come up with this typology in which they, they kind of categorize cluster just transition initiatives. And at one end, you've got kind of status quo ones where you don't have to do too much tinkering with your economic or business models. And then at the other end are really transformational approaches, root and branch change. Um, and so that's the other thing for different kinds of businesses to think through as they engage with just transition is, is some of that will be forced on businesses through through regulation and market demand and so on but where do we sit what kind of vision do we see for our role in the just transition and you've got all sorts of social enterprises and new kinds of business models emerging as well that that perhaps sit more comfortably at the transformational end of the just transition spectrum right. that yeah. need to have an impact on it right in the last piece of this, of the time we have available, I, I want you to sort of look into your, your magic ball, your just, your climate, your climate and human rights ball, and give as much advice as you can to the business and human rights movement about where we go from here. And to start that, I just, just let's be very concrete. What is the, the, and you said a lot of this, but just get it really succinct. The added value of the business and human rights approach, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights to this climate and human rights interface. And so for anybody listening to this who doesn't know about business and human rights, what is it that business and human rights can bring to the table here that, that's missing at the moment? I'd really like to hear you on that, John. I'm a, I mean, I'm a beginner, you know, I've been crunching these massive agendas together, climate change and human rights and business and, and sustainable development. and and. and and we've been exploring this together for a little while, yeah, yeah, yeah. to and froing, and and yet, how, I mean, what's your what's your aspiration for for the for the added value, in a sense, of what of what your movement can bring to this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't speak for all my colleagues in different organisations out there, but I think there's um, one of the things that's been achieved over the past ten years um, is this common framework that brings governments and businesses into the same government governance framework. Yeah. And we've got away from this idea that used to exist, that only governments could abuse human rights, and that actually um, businesses didn't really have to worry. If there wasn't a government telling them what to do, they didn't really have to worry about human rights. They had no direct responsibility, right? We've, 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 that's gradually dissolved uh, around the world in many places. Now, and very few people contest now that businesses have a direct responsibility, at least to respect human rights in their activities, even if the government doesn't care or is a million miles away. And I think that really, that, that in itself is important. So, because often where these things are happening, government is a long way away. 
right? I mean, government could be hundreds or thousands of miles away, or might be corrupt, or might be lack of re lack resources, or the community might not trust what government says anyway. The last time the government pitched up here was 20 years ago, and, and all this stuff. So it is actually uh, very important that, that if it's non-state actors talking to non-state actors, they do so with a direct reference to international law, right? So the UN Guiding Principles brings the whole body of internationally recognized human rights to very local situations, often. often. And I mentioned at the beginning this accountability point, right? It's, um, it is about government being accountable for what it's doing and not doing. It is about government holding business to account and the international community holding business to account as well. And it's this shared interest in remedy. And of course, remedy is the bit that often gets missed out when we talk about these things outside of a human rights context. And it's not just government's responsibility to deliver remedy to victims, it's also businesses. And, 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 and there's often a shared responsibility to, to, to define what adequate uh, mechanisms can be put in place. And for, for the just transition process, I think remedy is essential, right? It, things have to be just, um, but, but how can you talk about justice without remedy? <laughs> it, 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 it makes no sense. And if we just think about justice in terms of rule of law, then that's only part of it. And I think just transition, the way that just is defined or thought about, and the way it makes sense in the lives of real people is as, a, as, as an everyday concept. Um, and it, it's about the power that people have to, and the autonomy people have to define their own futures, to represent themselves, often against insurmountable odds, big powerful companies, uh, corrupt governments, etc. So I think business and human rights offers a lot, particularly to the just transition thing, because it's a procedural um, process related mm -hmm. concept. And, 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 and the UNGPs uh, are a process related concept, I would say. Um, I'm very good at sort of dynamic things. And if we're talking about transitions, uh, that's right. But I would say this final thing, you know, the UNGPs are not the be all and end all of business and human rights. It's a broader movement. We're talking about binding uh, international conventions in the UN. Um, we've got modern slavery legislation. We've got, you know, there's other bits to it. It's a wider concept. So in the way that um, uh, just transition isn't the whole of the climate human rights interface, the UNGPs are not the whole of the, of the business yeah. and human rights interface here, but, but, but a big part of it. So I'm excited and I, we're, we'll be piloting our thinking in uh, Colombia and in, in the Arctic and um, in the Bay of Bengal to try and take very three very distinct localities with different businesses, different communities to begin to show what methodologies can look like around different just transition processes to try and create an evidence base. Uh, one thing I've learned, particularly in the human rights world, is you can't ex go out there around the world and expect people to listen to you or believe what you're saying. Um, it, it, you know, people talk about fake news nowadays. Um, um, people are prepared to believe lots of silly things. Uh, people very rarely believe human rights without evidence, unfortunately. So we need an evidence base and uh, developing the evidence base over the next two to three years to answer some of these questions around scope, the ones you've raised in this conversation about how wide, how deep, how back, far back in time, how far forward in time. Those questions are interesting conceptual questions, but we need to test them. 
uh, in the lives of real people. And I think it's really also important through these pilots that we actually create benefits for the communities involved. Uh, this isn't, you know, we're not an academic organization. Um, it's very important that if we engage with communities, NGOs, governments, and others uh, around different pathways and different methodologies, that that actually does empower communities and allows them to make better decisions uh, with greater autonomy that will that increases the chances of them having better outcomes to, to, to the transitions ahead. So that's my answer to the question. But I'm very interested now in the final minutes to hear what you would say and what final challenges you would like to leave all of us with in the business and human rights world. Not that you're going off to Mars. No. Uh, you're in Poland at the moment. I know. But, but I mean, you know, you're not going away, but, but you know, you, you've just finished this great paper for us. It's starting a conversation. What, when we read your paper, Helena, what are the things that should really, you know, be, be front of mind for us? <laughs> I only finished it two days ago, so I, let it, I need to let it's it. Fresh. It's fresh in your mind. For a little bit. But um, so one, I mean, in a sense, it's back to the earlier part of our conversation. So number one, I think that the business and human rights community can help to ensure that the rights of communities are central in, not the be all and the end, but are centrally significant in just transition processes. So one, it, because from a business and human rights perspective, you're not going to just focus on the rights of workers, you're going to focus on the impacts and the rights of people around the businesses as well. The second thing is around um, adding a richness to understanding just transition as not only being around mitigation, but also around the potential human rights impacts of other responses to climate change, which may well include adaptation responses. And of course, the fact that you're going to be focusing on the Bay of Bengal as one of your pilots, I think will really allow you to shine a light on that. Um, the UN guiding principles bring something very distinctive to the business and human rights community contribution to work on just transition. And I think your pilots are going to throw out several challenges to the UN guiding principles as well. Um, because whilst they clearly create a responsibility on the part of businesses to act on climate change, they don't, they don't contain comprehensive guidance on that. Um, and I think there will be lots of questions around, you know, whether the, the UNGPs ending with businesses direct linkages as well as cause and contribute takes them far enough. I think also that there will be lots of really interesting conversations, which I'm sure will happen quite naturally about how addressing human rights implications in the context of a location specific just transition relates to the rights of other people who are not in the room and yet whose rights are impacted. Um, and, and I think that this kind of this, this rich scope as well to bring together insights from the sustainable development community and the climate justice and business and human rights communities with just transition as part of climate justice is is really quite exciting and in terms of the kind of the nerdy business tools oh, they're not nerdy are they if they're business tools they're practical management oriented tools i think that exploring those links between climate risk management on the one hand and human rights due diligence on the other from a business perspective is potentially very fruitful and exciting and could make a real difference to advances in each set of community actors 
And it's super interesting at this time when we're talking about mandatory due diligence at the European Union level, yeah. for example, both in terms of climate and in terms of human rights, is are we going to see two different methodologies develop in parallel? Are we going to have climate impact assessment methodologies and human rights impact assessment methodologies siloed from each other, but both being required? Or will there be attempts to, to, to merge the two into a combined impact assessment methodology that's required? Well, do you have any thoughts? Given that you're one of these few people out there that has a toe in both worlds, do you have a view on that? No, I mean, I, I, I've only really got as far as seeing the nature of the challenge, which is, you know, linking something that's quite aggregated to something that's, that's, that's quite disaggregated in the sense that human rights due diligence is quite disaggregated. Um, and I think maybe climate risk insurance is one space that would be interesting to look at in the first instance perhaps but all sorts of other things will unfold and just just to talk a little bit perhaps about your three pilots in closing you've got this fantastic mix of locations in Colombia coal is a huge issue you've got all sorts of very immediate um, adjoining human rights issues um, in adjoining geographies as well which I'm quite sure will have an impact on how you do your just transition work with people on your just transition initiative there. Working in the Bay of Bengal brings climate adaptation to the fore. And I think your Arctic work will raise all sorts of questions about how you draw the boundaries of just transition because of one, one of the reasons, of course, that there's lots of new mining activity in the Arctic, actually and potentially and lots of new shipping routes, is itself connected in the first place to re renewable energy and, and you know, batteries and all the rest of it, and in the second place to the impacts of the climate, yes. climate impacts and their implications for Arctic shipping. So you've got a fantastic group of pilot projects, I think, in terms of, of locations and issues, and um, you haven't invited me to close, but, but perhaps I could just say, you know, I'm so, I'm so looking forward to seeing how it unfolds. I, I think it can really make a huge difference and, and really hope that with partners, you, you find all sorts of people to work with in common cause who can really help you to advance both positive climate outcomes and realisation of human rights. Well, I, I, I can't add to what you've said, Helena. You've, you've, <laughs> you brilliantly uh, ended the, uh, what I thought was a really interesting hour. Um, please do read the report Helena's done for us. Uh, you can download it from the, from the website. And uh, uh, more to come from IHRB about the three pilots and our own thinking around just transitions. Transition, transitions, that's another discussion, I think, plural or singular. Um, but Helena, thank you so much. Um, we will have you back again, I hope, sometime in the future to, uh, to have another discussion um, as things progress. But uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for your work um, and, and helping us get off the ground with some, some great thinking here. And uh, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Um, so best wishes. See you soon. Bye-bye now. Thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me in.